Today's sermon text is Acts 13, verses 32 through 39. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it was written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, as he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man is forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can be seated. If you haven't already, I want to invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 13. We are jumping back into the book of Acts after a, a short little break. We did a couple uh, series uh, between our last time in Acts and now as we're jumping back in. We've been, we started the book of Acts at the beginning of this year. It is a very long book, mainly because it's a narrative. So there are longer passages. There are, there are really important stories in the book. We want to take our time as we're walking through it. If you're newer to Trace Crossing, this is our normal practice of preaching. We preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse. And uh, we've been looking through the book of Acts. We, we started with the first um, eight chapters of the book, and then we looked at chapters 9 through 12, and now here we are in Acts chapter 13. We're going to take Acts chapter 13 and preach today, and then all the way through Acts chapter 20 by the end of November. So from now until the end of November, we will be in the book of Acts. So I want you to get comfortable with it. I want you to spend time, maybe devotionally, you could start this week reading the book of Acts, starting in chapter 13, read a little bit every single day, immerse yourself in uh, this part of the book of Acts. We'll stop at the end of Acts chapter 20 for an Advent series, and then we will most likely pick back up with Acts 21 and finish out the rest of the book. Um, it's been a while since we were in the book of Acts, and we need a little bit of a refresher. Actually, Pastor Avery provided a really helpful resource that's out there on the credenza. If you didn't get one on your way in, make sure you get one on your way out. It's just a timeline of major events in, from Acts 1 to Acts 12. So if you hadn't, didn't receive one of those, make sure you get one on your way out. It'll help you as you're jumping in here in Acts chapter 13. Um, the book of Acts, if you remember, it opened with Jesus meeting with his disciples after he had died and he was raised from the dead and he was, he was appearing to all of these people. Um, he meets with his disciples and he gives them a mission. And after he gives them the mission, he ascends into heaven and then his spirit, days later, descends upon them and empowers them to fulfill that mission. Jesus commanded his disciples not 30 days after he had died and, and was raised from the dead, he said in Acts 1 verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The book of Acts is written by Dr. Luke. Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts is, is essentially part two, or the sequel to his Gospel. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke is unfolding and introducing us to all of the things that Jesus began to do. He tells us this in Acts chapter 1. So in the book of Acts, what Luke is essentially doing is he is 
unfolding for us and introducing us to the works that Jesus continued to do through his spirit and through the church. The book of Acts chronicles this gospel mission that was given by Jesus in Acts 1.8. And it's, it's really amazing. I hope if you, if you can think back to some of the events that we, we saw in the book of Acts as we walked through it earlier this year, it's amazing that people from all walks of life are starting to be radically changed by the gospel and by the spirit of God. And, and it happened through the witness of people who are not that impressive. I mean, you're, you're talking fishermen who are now these bold proclaimers of a new message that they've received. Can you imagine Peter and John and some of these other disciples, some of these early, other early Christians stepping up and sharing this brand new message that they had just heard? It's fresh on their minds. And then receiving all of these questions from, from Jew and Gentile alike to which they probably had very few answers. They're asked all these questions, you know, why, okay, what do you mean? What are you saying? What about this and what about that? And you, you've met people like that before. You can't get a word in without them saying, yeah, that's true, but what about this and what about that? And that's one reason that we're actually held back from evangelism because we are very afraid to enter into a conversation about Jesus because they may ask us a question to which we have to say what? I don't know. And we're, we don't like saying I don't know. We're uncomfortable with that. Can you imagine these early Christians? Don't let, don't, don't let that be lost on you. We, we think of the book of Acts as you know, this, this you know, glorious book of these accounts of these glorious people who did things that we could never do. These are the most ordinary people you would ever meet in your life. And they are compelled to tell this story of something that happened. Church, we can never, ever, ever speak the gospel to you too much. We can't. I was even tempted, I, you know, after we went through that, that short Series over the past few weeks where we were emphasizing the gospel so much, I was very tempted to even just think, I mean, I know we said we'd jump back into Acts, but as soon as you get into Acts, it's the gospel all over again. I mean, aren't people going to get, you know, tired of that? Maybe we could do something more practical. And I just, I started thinking to myself about the simplicity of what's actually here on these pages in this wonderful book. Ordinary people like you and me telling a story. This isn't the book of Romans where Paul is unpacking this, this high theology. This, this is the book of Acts where you have ordinary people telling an ordinary story about an extraordinary person, telling a story about something that happened. And then I thought to myself, do, do we ever really get tired of those, those traditional family stories that we have? I mean, you have them, right? You, you have those stories that your dad or your grandfather would, would tell, and it's told every single time you go over to someone's house. I remember my, my dad and my, and my papa, they absolutely loved to tell this story about an assistant uh, coach on this high school team. And I have no idea. I think his name was Red, maybe. I don't know. I mean, it's Eastern Kentucky. Who knows? Um, but th they would love to tell this story. And it was like every single time, you know, whenever at first you knew it was coming, to be like, you know, that reminds me. And as soon as he would say, that reminds me, you knew either my dad or my papa, you knew what was coming. And it, it, my initial response as a kid would usually be, oh, I, mm, I wonder what this is going to be. But then as soon as the story is told, there's this emotional effect that it would have on me, and it's like, I never get tired of that story. My dad could call me today and tell me the story about Red saying, you know, we're going we're gonna to take the team to Hazard, but you can't get there from here. You got to go to Harlan first, you know, and, and it's, you know, these, these weird stories that are not funny, that just are funny to me because it's a family story that, that is passed down. We have something so, so incredibly glorious to pass down. 
to pass down and to pass on to other people. You are not called to come in this place and get really smart and really equipped and really capable so that you can go out and win people for Jesus. You are here to be reminded of the story of what Jesus has done. He did something. Something happened that changed the world. And we believe it. We believe this is true. So we go and we tell other people. That's what the book of Acts is about. And so this story starts to spread. It spreads all through the city center of Jerusalem and then on the outskirts in the area of Judea. And then it starts to spread even to in, into Samaria. And then as, as Jesus' commission is being fulfilled, now in Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas set sail to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. They literally get on a boat and they sail to an island, the island of Cyprus, to share the gospel, this last frontier, the ends of the earth, to tell this story. Now, what, what I love about this, and we didn't read this, but at the beginning of Acts chapter 13, in the first three verses, we have the church at Antioch, and whenever we looked at the church of Antioch in Acts chapter 11, uh, we were amazed at how healthy this church was. I mean, it was, it was un, unreal. It's kind of hard to believe a church could be that healthy that soon. But the church in Antioch was so, so healthy. And they had wonderful leaders. Paul was there. Barnabas was there. I mean, they had the rock stars of the Christian world at that time in their church. And it would have been so easy for the church at Antioch to be like, oh, we have arrived. Life is so good. When you come to church in Antioch, you get to hear Paul preach. When you come to church in Antioch, when Paul's out of town, Barnabas steps up and Barnabas gets to preach. And can you imagine how much they just enjoyed gathering together for worship? And this could have been the place that became Paul's happily ever after. A church that gets it, a church that is just on fire for Jesus, a church that responds to his teaching, a place where he could have just lived a comfortable life and had a very fruitful ministry. But the problem was the church at Antioch was a healthy church. And healthy churches understand the mission. And so we see here at the beginning of Acts chapter 13, the church at Antioch sending, not just anybody, sending their best, sending their brightest, you go. You are really gifted, so go. Go and tell other people about what Jesus has done. We'll be okay here. We're, thank you so much for all that you've done, but we're good here. You guys go. And they send Paul and Barnabas, and, and off they go. They sail to the island of Cyprus. And they have a laser focus. When they come to Cyprus, they come to Cyprus to do one thing and one thing only, to tell other people the news that they have not heard, that Jesus has died, he is raised, and he is king. And that's, they, they risk their lives for this. They, they sail, they, they encounter people, they have no idea how people are going to respond to them, but they go, and they go because there is a new king, and both Jews and Gentiles are invited into his kingdom. Now, over the next few months, as we're walking through uh, Acts 13 through 20, I hope you notice all the, the space that Luke gives to these, these tiny details of Paul's travels. It actually sometimes makes it difficult to preach because there are lengthy sections where it just describes, well, they went here and they went here and they went here, and we're like, well, I guess we got to flip to the back of our Bibles because those maps, you know, are back there. They still make Bibles like that where they have the maps in the back? Yeah. You, you turn to the back, and, and you should do that, actually. You should turn and look and find. This is Paul's first missionary journey, and they're on the island of Cyprus, but um, you, you, I'm challenged by these details because they show us a man who has been so utterly captivated by Jesus that he is willing to go anywhere, anywhere, with, with, regardless of the consequences, to tell others about him. You see, Jesus had interrupted Paul's world. 
turned it upside down. We saw that in Acts chapter 9 with his conversion. The gospel had changed Paul forever. If you look back, and you should do this, by the way, if you look back at Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9, and you read about what Paul was doing, and you just take that as a snapshot, and then you look here in Acts chapter 13 at what Paul is doing, it looks like two completely different people. And you know why it looks that way? Because that's the reality. It is two completely different people. It was Paul before he met Jesus and Paul after he met Jesus. He was utterly captivated. Jesus interrupted and subverted everything about Paul's world. In Acts 13, we see the risen Jesus interrupt the worlds of three different groups of people in the same way that he did Paul. The reason Paul is on Cyprus is because Jesus is about to do or Jesus has done for Paul what he is about to do in the lives of three different groups of people. So I want to show you three things this morning. First, because Jesus died and rose again, Jesus subverts the spiritual world. So, so one, Jesus subverts the spiritual world. Two, Jesus subverts the religious world. And finally, Jesus subverts the outcast. So, so three types of, of people here, the, the really spiritual, the really religious, and the outcast. And Jesus comes and he does the exact same thing in each of their lives, but we see two radically different responses to Jesus. And in the end, I want to invite you to respond to Jesus. You essentially, at the end of this sermon, have to pick a lane because there's no other way with him. So let's look at Jesus' holy subversion of the world. First, Jesus subverts the spiritual world. All right, so in, in Acts chapter, chapter 13, starting in verse 4, from verses 4 through 12, we have a specific setting. We have Paul and Barnabas. They're, they're on the island of Cyprus, and they are preaching the word of God in the synagogues. This was their practice. They would find synagogues. Most of the time, people would invite them in. And also, by the way, in the Roman world, um, the Jews were actually among one of the only groups that were free to worship one God. They were one of the only groups that were free. They were given privilege to do this. So there were synagogues throughout the Roman Empire. And so they would find these synagogues, they would enter in, and they would ask for an opportunity to teach. Sometimes the, since they were guests, there would be hospitality, and they would invite them. Hey, brothers, if you have something to say, feel free to come. But this was their practice. They would go. Now, as they're traveling throughout Cyprus and they're doing this, sharing the gospel, they developed this reputation as men who were bringing a new kind of message. And so in this journey on this island, Paul and Barnabas meet a really interesting character here. They meet a man named Bar-Jesus who, who is a magician, we're told, and, and a false prophet. Now his name literally means the son of salvation. And Bar-Jesus, he had a really unique role. He worked with the Roman proconsul, which is essentially like a Roman governor, um, in, in the, this place called Paphos. And so uh, his name was Sergius Paulus, and Paulus was the governor of this region in the Roman Empire. So Paul and Barnabas, as they are teaching and as they meet this magician, and he is connected to this Roman governor, the governor hears the news about Paul and Barnabas, and he hears what they are teaching, and he invites them to come in because he wants to hear the word of the Lord. 
He wants to hear what these men have to say. I mean, can you imagine this pagan Roman authority figure asking to hear the gospel? He's asking to hear it. And so Paul and Barnabas, they, they oblige. Oh, sure, I guess. I mean, I guess that's what we can do. We can come and tell you about Jesus. And so they come and they tell Sergius Paulus about Jesus. And what we see here is that immediately in this passage, immediately, Bar Jesus, this false prophet, this magician, he rebukes the governor. He tries to turn Sergius Paulus against the gospel message. He tries to keep him, literally, from believing. He sought to turn his heart away from Jesus. And here what we see is a spiritual battle. We have, on the one hand, we have this occult leader who is seeking to oppose the work of the Spirit and the work of of God's Word in the life of an unbeliever. And, and this, this battle has specific lines that are drawn, and Paul sees them, and so he steps forward in the power of the Spirit, we're told, and he rebukes Bar-Jesus for opposing the work of God in the life of Sergius Paulus. He has some names for him, some name-calling from, from Paul here. You know, you may think he's petty. I think he is just bringing the judgment of the Lord. But here he comes. He says, you are a son of the devil. I mean, can you imagine just being, you know, you're just sitting there and you're like, hey, look, if I were you, I would not believe this. This is nonsense. You know, please do not believe this stuff coming from these guys. And the guy looks at you and says, you son of the devil. But it's really interesting because his name means son of salvation. He's like, your name is garbage. You are a son of Satan. He calls him an enemy of righteousness. He says, you are filled with deceit and villainy. You are making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Paul then pronounces specific judgment from God on Bar-Jesus. And so this false prophet who is seeking to darken the Roman governor's new, newly developing faith in Jesus, he himself has been made blind. And so Sergius Paulus, he, he's there, he witnesses all of this. He hears the gospel, he starts to respond positively. Bar-Jesus interrupts and he tries to sway him away from faith in Jesus. Paul rebukes this false prophet and strikes him blind. And so now his own magician is blind, and he sees the whole thing, and he reaches a very expected conclusion, but for a very unexpected reason. We see that this Roman governor was filled with amazement. He is amazed, Luke tells us. Astonished. But why is he astonished? Look with me. See it for yourself in verse 12. After he saw, after he saw and witnessed all this, then the proconsul believed. He believed. And to me, I'm thinking, well, yeah. I mean, if you see a guy who preaches a message and then the same guy strikes someone blind, yeah, I might believe that guy. <laughs> I might believe what he has to say. Um, but, but just stick with it. It says, when he saw what had occurred, Luke tells us, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Isn't that insane? He was astonished and amazed, not at the miracle, not at the judgment. He was still, I mean, you can almost imagine him not even being phased by the blinding because he's so captivated by the story that Paul told about Jesus. He's still amazed at what he said about Jesus. He's still astonished at Jesus. He's in awe of the story. Here's, Here's what we see here. Jesus interrupts the spiritual world because through his death and resurrection, Satan is defeated. We see this in how Bar-Jesus responded to the gospel. 
you know, you, you have to wonder, why was he so offended? Why was he so offended by the message? I mean, my goodness, he's in, he's in the Roman Empire. There are gods upon gods upon gods. What's one more? Why, why, why is this such a big deal? I mean, he was determined to make sure that his boss did not believe in Jesus. Well, here's why. Because the message that they preached was not just, hey, here's another God for you, or even, here's the one true God. Very specifically, he says, Paul tells him, Jesus lived, he died, he rose, and now he is the king. He is the king. And he demands your allegiance over everyone else. And what Bar-Jesus saw there was, I'm about to lose my spiritual authority over this man. If he comes to faith in Jesus, he has a new authority. He has someone new to submit to. Because right now, Bar-Jesus is a magician in the courts of Sergius Paulus. He has a lot of influence. He's like a soothsayer. He can, he can predict, he can cast the runes, and he can predict what's going to happen. And so he was relied upon. Well, now, if he comes to faith in Jesus, and he starts relying on Jesus, Bar-Jesus is out of a job. So he, he opposes this man. He could not allow his boss to believe the gospel. It was the authority of Jesus as the risen king, the true Lord of the universe, that threatened this man. Now, we also see how the spiritual world is upended by Jesus in Paul's response. You notice what Paul does here? He doesn't enter into a debate. He doesn't enter into a discussion. He doesn't want to hear him out. He immediately rebukes his spiritual enemy. He says to the son of salvation, you are a son of Satan. And he pronounces divine judgment upon him. All of this highlights that Jesus has power and authority over all evil and demonic forces. Satan is real. Satan is powerful. Satan will tempt you. He schemes and he fights. He wages war against us through his scathing accusations and his attempts to divide us and draw us away from the truth. But even though Satan sometimes wins spiritual battles here and there, when he works to lead us away from Jesus and his ways, he actually has lost the war. And it wasn't even close. He won in a landslide, Jesus did. And in fact, as, as with Bar-Jesus here, Satan loves to attack those who are drawing near to Jesus. The closer you get to Jesus, the more Satan will oppose you. It's a fact. It's just like Bar-Jesus here. They can't stand it. Because the more that you draw near to Jesus, the more you're submitting to him, the less authority Satan has. And he wants you to think that he has authority. Jesus interrupted the spiritual world through his death and resurrection because he is the conquering king. He is the one who has come and crushed the head of the serpent through his death and through his resurrection. But Jesus does something else here. We, we actually move scenes. So start in verse 13. Jesus not only subverts the spiritual world, but through his death and resurrection, Jesus subverts the religious world. And this is something that we need to hear. Luke moves us to a new setting, okay? Paul and Barnabas, now they've moved on from Cyprus. They've sailed off again. They're in Perga. Um, again, the map. Just look at the map. Um, and then they made their way um, to this prominent Roman city called Antioch in 
Pisidia. And their custom, we know what they do now, Paul and Barnabas, they find a synagogue, they go into the synagogue on the Sabbath. This time, though, they don't immediately go up and start speaking. They literally just kind of slip in the back door and they find a seat. And Paul and Barnabas are sitting and they participate in the service on the Sabbath and they're listening as uh, the scriptures are read. We're told that the religious leader stood up and he read from the law and the prophets and they sat there and after the reading was finished, they asked Paul and Barnabas, the religious leaders did, these newcomers, they they asked them if they had a word of encouragement for the people. Did you see how the Lord is just opening doors for them? I mean, my goodness, you have Sergius Paulus who's like, I want to hear the gospel. Would you mind sharing it with me? Okay. I mean, then you have uh, the the, uh, religious leaders here in the synagogue, and they're not even asking to speak. And he looks at them and he says, hey, do you guys have an encouraging word from us? And you can just imagine Paul and Barnabas just looking at each other. Oh, do we ever have an encouraging word for you? And, And they get an opportunity. And then Paul, just like Jesus, he gave the religious leaders far more than they were asking for. He stands up and and he preaches this sermon that stretches all the way from the election of Israel through the kingship of David. This is actually the first recorded sermon from Paul. It actually makes you think back to Stephen before his stoning as he's walking through all of Israel's history. Paul does a similar thing. But Paul's different. Because you've got to remember, Paul is, is, he probably was a genius, Paul really probably was a genius. He, he was not just an expert in the Old Testament law. The reason that he was so zealous and the reason that he persecuted so many Christians is because he could not stand the fact that there were people out here claiming to believe in his God in such a blasphemous way because he was so well-versed in the Old Testament. I mean, he knows the Hebrew Bible more than anyone else. Um, and so here he comes, and he teaches these people from the Old Testament in the same way that he would have done so many times before, but now he has a different interpretive lens. Now he sees it differently, and now his sermon has a different point than it would have in the past. In fact, there are two things that stand out from his sermon. We're not going to read his entire sermon. It's really long. I would encourage you to to read it later today. But there are two points in the sermon. First is that Jesus is the center of Israel's story. Oh, this would have been so radical to hear Um, So, again, they're on the Sabbath, they're in synagogue, the law has been read, they've been reading from the prophets, they're probably reading from the writings as well, they're they're reading all of this. Paul walks through all of Israel's history and then makes an interesting point. He walks them by the hand through the exodus out of Egypt. He takes them through the wilderness journey to the promised land. He mentions the judges and the prophet Samuel. And then he takes them to King Saul and ultimately to King David. And he's telling them this story that they've heard so many times. Another one of those family stories that would have made them feel really good. And he keeps going. And then he says this. He says, um, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior. Jesus, as he promised. Now that was new. They were familiar with the story. That is a new conclusion. You see what he's done. He's saying from the Exodus to King David and everything in between, it was all just building and building and building and building until God sent the Savior that was promised through all of that. And I know who he is. It's Jesus the one that they all would have been familiar with and heard about. 
He even emphasizes John the Baptist as a final prophet before the coming of, of Jesus the Savior. And the point that he's making is that everything and everyone in Israel's story that came before Jesus was merely a foretaste of what was to come in him. The promises were no less true. The, the symbols and the rituals were no less meaningful. But Paul is basically pulling the curtain back for them, and he's shining a light on what all of these events were really and ultimately all about. The history of Israel, the story of the Bible, is a drama that centers on Jesus. It builds momentum and it climaxes in Jesus, the long-awaited Savior. And as I said, it cannot be overstated how radical this message would have been in a Jewish synagogue. Paul was reinterpreting not only the Jewish scriptures, he was reinterpreting their entire history. And he says that Jesus has interrupted Israel's corporate story in the best way possible. But it is still an interruption. One more thing we see in the story that's really important is Paul emphasizes that Jesus is not just the center of the story, he is the Messiah who brings salvation. So he backs up this claim that Jesus is the center, that it all points to him in verse 26. So look at, look at verse 26 with me. He says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. And he explains, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, and then the scathing phrase, which are read every Sabbath. I mean, he is, he, he is emphasizing those who were in Jerusalem, they totally missed it, and they are without excuse. He says, they fulfilled those scriptures that they didn't understand by condemning him meaning Jesus. Verse 28, And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Verse 30, Praise be to God. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. You see what Paul's doing? He's connecting the promised Messiah on paper in the scriptures to what happened to the person of Jesus in real time. He's saying salvation has come through Jesus because the Jews condemned him to death and because God raised him from the dead. His death and resurrection guarantee salvation for his people. So because Jesus died and was raised from the dead, two new promises are now held out for us and for these people, these Jews that he was speaking to. And they're found in, in verse 38. What a glorious verse. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers... After, after all of this, what a, what a wonderful conclusion here to a sermon. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. He stands before them and he says, forgiveness is yours. 
Forgiveness is yours. Freedom is yours. But not through your adherence to the law. Through Jesus. You see, these two sermon points from Paul, that Jesus is the sinner and Jesus is the Savior, it turned the religious world upside down. I mean, you got to think about it. I mean, you hear this, and maybe you're like, yes, absolutely, yes, this is it. You're right. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised one. What now? Because you're, it's the Sabbath, and you're in synagogue. What do you do next week? Do you keep coming? Do you, uh, if you're a religious leader, and you are converted, and you come to faith in Jesus, do you quit? Do you read the scriptures differently? Is your teaching just, just different now? Do you, what, your entire schedule, your calendar, it would be completely upended. How, how do you live? Do we do sacrifices anymore? What, what do we do? You see how Jesus interrupts and flips everything upside down. The religious leaders realized this. They realized this. And they rejected not only Jesus, but Paul as well. Jesus interrupted their religious world. He subverted their authority. Because now, what people need most to know God and to be reconciled to him is Jesus and not the religious leaders. So just like bar Jesus, the religious leaders have a problem on their hands. If they submit to King Jesus and they are giving their allegiance ultimately to him and they, and they have forgiveness and freedom, just because of their faith in Jesus... Their spiritual authority, their religious authority over these people is upended. It is subverted. It is challenged and threatened. And we see this. See, as soon as Paul finishes preaching this sermon, there's spiritual hunger in the air. Um, we, we see it here. Um, uh, look at verse 42 with me. As they went out, the people begged, begged, that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. That is every preacher's dream. You walk out of here after you preach the gospel, and they're like, please, will you please preach the gospel again next week? I need it. I need it for my soul. Preach it again. They're, beg they're begging for Paul to preach it the next week. So verse 43, um, and, and after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So they're coming to these guys, and they're like, hey, we're, we're kind of buying in. We, we want to know more. We want to learn more. Tell us more about Jesus. You have Jews, you have people who have converted recently to Judaism who are now coming to them, and they're interested in Jesus. And that creates a problem, because in verse 44, what do we find here? The next Sabbath... Oh, they, they oblige. They come back to preach the gospel again. But look what happened. Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. <sighs> News had spread. Something, something is in the air here. This isn't just a, like an ordinary, oh, it's a gifted preacher down the road there. Let's all go listen to him real quick. You know, it's not like Billy Graham coming to town or something. This is brand new. This is like, these people are saying that Jesus is the king of the whole world. You need to go hear these guys out. Um, our entire religious structure and system is about to crumble and fall apart. You need to come and check this out. Look what happens in verse 45. But when the Jews, and, and the word that's used there, it emphasizes the fact that these are most likely religious leaders. When they saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. 
And they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. You see how similar they are to that magician? So similar. They want to keep people from believing in Jesus because of their jealousy. They were reviling him. Um, Ultimately, this led to their persecution. The end of chapter 13, the beginning of chapter 14, we see persecution. Paul and Barnabas are suffering at the hands of these religious leaders. This is the effect that Jesus has on a person. He changes everything. He turns your world upside down. So even for religious church people like us, when you finally get the gospel, when you finally understand that God has forgiven and freed you on the basis of Jesus and not on the basis of your religious performance, it radically changes the way that you come to church. It radically changes the way that you read your Bible, the way that you minister to your family, the way that you go to work, the way that you pray. It changes everything. You stop trying to win forgiveness, and you start living as if you really are forgiven. You stop trying to earn freedom, and you start living as someone who has been set free from even that fear and temptation. Jesus shakes up our religious systems. He takes our ways of thinking about our relationship with him and he turns it upside down. You see, we don't worship God now so that he will accept us. God accepts us because of what Jesus has done, so we worship God. This is the message of salvation that we have been given. And we've been given to steward it in our hearts and to our city. Here's the question, though, for you to reflect on this week. The question is, Are we aware of the ways that we are prone to reject Jesus' authority and reign as king over our lives? Because we love to look at stories like this, and we can't relate to a magician at all, you know? That's so distant from us. Like, yeah, his attitude, well, yeah, he's an evil magician. I'd never be like that. And then the religious leaders, like, yeah, I've read the Gospels. They're the bad guys, and I'm not a bad guy. I'm not like them. We don't relate to them. That's exactly who we are. And if If you don't think you're like that in any way at all, you probably have a blind spot. There is likely something in your life that you do not want to give up to Jesus. That you do not want to give him say and authority over. It's yours. It's mine. I dictate it. I control this. I do what I want with this specific thing. And if Jesus asks me to do something else, tough luck. I'm not doing that. We all have those things in our lives. How does the gospel threaten your way of life? Because the gospel is not complete unless you believe that Jesus is king. He is Lord over every single aspect of your life. It all has to be submitted to him and his ways. If you are living in a way that you end up learning is inconsistent with Jesus' way, you have to repent and you have to turn and you have to submit. What are the things in your life that you would be slow to do that with? What has a grip over your life that if you realize that Jesus had authority over that too, you might not be as cool with him as you think you are? Jesus has invaded our worlds and he is in charge and it's not up for debate. It's not subject to our opinion or even our faith. Christianity is rooted in history, something that happened because he really died and he really raised or really was raised He is really the Lord of all. That's why the mission is to tell a story, not create a religion. 
So what, what part of your world do you want Jesus to keep six feet of dis- distance from? Is that too soon? Too Sorry, corny. But um, what part of your world do you not want Jesus to touch? Reflect on that this week. Once you identify it, you can freely give it up to Jesus. You can say, yes, Lord, even this, even this, it's yours. Have your way. You can entrust every area of your life to Jesus because he is gentle and lowly and kind because you are forgiven and free in him. One more thing I want you to see. So Jesus subverts the spiritual world. He subverts the religious world. He's turning every single thing upside down. He's changing everything because of what he really did in time. There's one last thing that he does here. And if you notice, those two groups that we saw, the spiritual and the religious, they both responded with anger and hostility and opposition and rejection. And they don't want to believe in Jesus themselves, and they don't want anyone else to believe in Jesus because they want to have control. There's one more group here that we see that Jesus also subverts their authority, but they respond very differently. Jesus subverts the outcast. Um, Roman cities, uh, when you look back on them, they were perfect places to spread the gospel. They were perfect. Paul's strategy to go to these cities was genius. See, Jews, as I said, were the only religious groups free to worship one God in the empire. So that means that in a lot of these big cities, there were a lot of Jews. There were a lot of Jews that would gather for worship in these places, but obviously the majority of the people were not Jewish. They were Gentile. People who were historically counted as religious and spiritual outcasts. They were pagans. They were idolaters. They were not welcome in the people of God. So you have this social environment where there is a clear divide between Jew and Gentile. And Paul comes to a synagogue, a place of Jewish worship, and he preaches about Jesus, which means that Jew and Gentile can come to faith in him and be welcomed into the same body. I want you to notice here what happens after Paul's response to Jewish opposition. Look at verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And here's how they responded. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside... And judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And look at this response. Where Paul and Barnabas are essentially saying to everyone there, the gospel is for the Gentiles too. This is not a Jewish religion. Jesus is not just a Jewish king. He's your king too. He was raised for you too. He died for you too. There's forgiveness for you too. There's freedom for you too. And look at how they respond. You remember the religious leaders heard the exact same message. The exact same message and they're like, get out of here. We want no part of you. The the magician heard the same message and he's like, not here. Not in this place. There's only one king, Caesar. Look how they respond in verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. 
and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Jesus subverts the outcast by bringing them home. The promises given to Abraham and David are now theirs. Forgiveness and freedom belong to them now. And those who were far from God have been brought near. Do you know why they responded to that message with joy? Because when Jesus comes in and he says, hey, now I'm in charge. Now I'm in charge. It means that they have someone who is in authority over them who gives them a place to belong. And they are welcomed in. Us, we, we're idolaters. We, we're pagan. We worship many gods. You don't understand what we do in our free time. You don't understand what we have done in the past. And King Jesus steps in and he says, come to me. Come to me. You're forgiven. And you are free. And you are loved. And you are mine. You belong to me. That news was so threatening to the, to the Jewish leaders and to the magician. And it is so deeply comforting to someone who knows just how messed up they are. If you are an outcast... If you think to yourself, there is no chance I have of having any type of eternal life or any good thing in the future because of how I've lived my life now. You need to hear the news that Jesus died and he was raised for your sins and he is the king. And so guess what? No matter what anyone else says, no matter their accusations against you, they don't have authority. This is why it brought them so much joy. All of the people who would revile them even the Jews who would revile them, they don't have authority anymore. Jesus does. He's the king. And there's so much joy in that. Jesus subverts the lives of Gentiles too, and he subverts our lives. He undermines our personal autonomy and authority, but it should not be received as a threat or a challenge. It should be received as a deep comfort the one who now wields authority over our lives is the very one who has brought us home to God to the very one who gives us what no one else can true forgiveness and lasting freedom the Gentiles show us that wholehearted allegiance to Jesus is a gift of great joy listen Jesus has whether you like it or not, invaded our world in the best way possible. He has subverted spiritual, religious, and personal authorities. And through his death and resurrection, this is very good news. Because Jesus is king, we can be forgiven. Because Jesus is king, we can be set free. So how are you going to respond this morning? How are you going to respond? Will you respond with opposition and rejection to the authority of Jesus over your life or a specific area of your life? Will you see the news about Jesus as a threat to your personal autonomy? Or will you respond the way these Gentiles did with faith and joy, seeing the news about Jesus as a deep comfort? Because that's exactly what it is. And for those of us in here that are receiving it as a comfort, do you see what happens in the lives of people who are rejoicing in what Jesus has done? Do you see what happens? 
It's not an accident. It is causal. They take what they have received and they spread it far and wide. 